is Our American Stories, and we love free enterprise, we love business, and we love Shark Tank. It's a great show. It's number one on television on Friday nights, and it's practically running round the clock on CNBC at night as well, beating the regular programming during the day, by the way. And next up in the tank from this past week is a guy named Martin with his company, Smart Plate. Here's the pitch. Hi, Sharks. My name is Martin Dellarchipretti, and I'm from Philadelphia, PA. My company is SmartPlate, and I'm seeking $1 million for a 15% stake in my company. Every day, millions of Americans work hard to maintain a healthier lifestyle. From health-conscious consumers to elite athletes, success comes down to eating smart. The problem is, eating smart with current solutions requires tedious manual calorie counting, which is time-consuming, Frustrating, and worst of all, inaccurate. Smart Plate is the world's first intelligent plate that instantly analyzes your entire meal with up to 99% accuracy. And Alex is doing the math because he knows I'm going to ask him. So let's see, a million dollars, 15% stake. What's he pe- pegging the valuation of his business? I can't do it quite exactly, but it's just shy of seven million. Just shy of seven million. That'll do. That yeah. gets him a ding and a bell. So how does the smart plate work? It uses food recognition technology and load sensors to identify and weigh everything sitting on its surface, from single foods to prepared meals like pizza, vegetable fried rice, and even a garden salad. All you have to do is place your food on the plate the way you normally would, and bam. Get all your nutritional information in a snap, including calories, carbs, and proteins. Our mission is to get smart plate into the hands of every American who wants to improve their health. Martin passes out some plates and then drops a word that no shark likes to hear, prototype. Do you have plates there that we can look at? Yes, yes, I do. I'm going to hand those out right now. So we have a prototype of our merchandising, and then we also have uh, a prototype of the smart plate. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Thank you. (laughs) When asked how the plate can differentiate between ingredients used, Martin complicates things. How does it differentiate fried rice with a certain type of oil and another type of oil? You know, I'm so oils and things of that nature. We're not going to be able to pick up, but we do have a solution for that. So we, we give consumers three options. They can either snap it, scan it or say it. So we have over 350,000 CPG barcodes. If somebody's out at a restaurant, We have a database of restaurant meals as well, over 100,000 restaurant meals. So I'm from New York City, and here's what we believe. On the eighth day, God made street meat. There's no barcode on the dirty little hot dogs that I eat Mm -hmm. out there. How is that going to help me? If you take a picture of the hot dog, we'll be able to analyze and identify that it's a hot dog. Then if it was was on, you know, the smart plate, we'd be able to identify the weight. If you didn't have the smart plate, um, just with your smartphone and the snap it feature, you'd be able to take a picture. We'd say that it's a hot dog. I'm thoroughly confused. I'm thoroughly confused. The smart plate ain't so smart, is what he's saying. When asked to demonstrate, Martin uses his phone rather than the smart plate to scan the food. Martin, can you demonstrate how that app actually works so we get a better feel for it? I'd love to do that. What's firing right now uh, is the food recognition portion. We don't have the weight sensors in these aesthetic prototypes yet, but I can demonstrate um, the functionality if that's okay. We're going to hit snap it, then we're going to look at our piece of pizza here. We're going to take a picture. Got it. And then within seconds, it'll be able to identify it. And there you see it. I see three cameras there. Yes. So talk about those. Absolutely. Yeah, because what were you, what were you using your phone for if the cameras are all in this, in the place? I was u- So what I was using my phone for was to simulate the cameras. 
Oh, my goodness. I am lost. How much are they trying to sell these things for? So it's going to retail for $199. Oh. For us, that's a 469%. Honey, sweetie, poopsie. That's crazy. <laughs> sweetie, poopsie. Damon, are you in or out? I'm uncomfortable with the way that you're making this pitch. Well, too bad. Then you're in, you're out. It's what a little, do, and, and so I'm out. Oh, Mr. Wonderful, what about you? Martin, when I, when I look at how people eat, including myself and my family, I think that people don't eat all their food at home near the smart plate. They have lunch at school, they have lunch on the run, they eat in a restaurant at night. You're going to spend a lot of time and money trying to sell these plates to people. And I don't really think they have any merit at all. I'm out. Ooh, what a slam, but I was thinking the same thing. Cuban? Dinner out. I don't see any technology that you guys introduced. This is a technological product. Mm -hmm. That's correct. You sold it as such, right? Yes. It is. You're trying to sell the value. And what I'm hearing is the value proposition, the core competency, you're hiring from third-party design companies and you're hoping they can make it work. They're they're experienced in the space. What if it doesn't work? You're betting your entire company on some external design company. You guys can't control your own destiny. You have no idea whether or not this stuff is even going to work. That is a huge problem for me. I'm out. What about guest shark billionaire Chris Saka? You're trying to sell people a very expensive, very fragile, hard thing that doesn't fit in their pocket, that can't go with them anywhere, and you're charging a lot of money for it. There are so many different ways this business fails right out of the gate, and for that reason, I'm out. And Barbara... Are you in or out? Yeah, your presentation really was just terrible. I'm sorry to say. Just terrible and confusing. I'm out. <laughs> terrible and confusing. That was a depressing one. That was really <laughs> depressing. It was over by the third clip, I'm telling you. Jesse, thanks for doing that. We love bringing you Shark Tank because in the end you get to learn a little bit about business. And by the way, this guy was pegging his business at an almost $7 million valuation and he didn't have a sale. Not a single one. He didn't have a single <laughs> sale. And it's, it's as if the guy had never watched Shark Tank. Because as Alex, what do they always ask? What are your margins? What are your margins? Which means you have to have a sale to have a margin of profit. And this is our American stories. We love to cover it all. We love the culture. And we love it, particularly when the culture can be this darn entertaining and teach us a few lessons about why the 1%, those billionaires sitting up on the stage, give their money to others to make others a member of the 1% and live the American dream. And these folks don't just want the 1%'s money, of course. They want their wisdom and their experience. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and every week we love to talk to Heidi Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal because she has just such a great column or such a great feature, and that is the burning question. And each week there's a really, really good question that we drill down on, and this week's question is, can house plants be unhealthy for humans? It's house plants today for the segment. Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, always a pleasure. And you know, Heidi, you've tapped a nerve here. I hope you know. I've got some pretty serious feelings about houseplants. Um, and so I just wanted I to let I you know. I think I must have tapped some nerves because we got some, a little bit of hate mail. You got some hate on mail. This one. Yeah. Houseplants are so. like cats. I'm telling you, Heidi, people have deep feelings about them. And just some ba- just a backgrounder in the 80s and 90s, it, it, I was working in some offices and I was about to go to law school and I was doing temping and suddenly plants started appearing everywhere and it was like our job to water them. And if we didn't water them right and kill them, we'd get in trouble with somebody. And the reason they were there is because some environmental study said house plants were good for you and they put oxygen into the air. And I thought, this is just so stupid. And we got in trouble for killing plants. And I was the guy with the brown thumb who killed a couple of ficus trees and, like, got fired, Heidi. So it's just very, oh. it's very personal for me. Wow. Yeah. That's severe punishment. It is severe punishment. A plant. Although I can't really argue with your bosses. I mean, they shouldn't have fired you. That seems extreme. But they, they do. There are studies that show that they make you happier, like a cat, which I would never want either. But this is another <laughs> and, uh, thing. I mean, cats don't make me happy. They make me miserable. I don't like cats. But let's get right. into this. Let's get okay. into the burning question, because who cares what Habib thinks? This is our American <laughs> stories. We care what Heidi Mitchell discovered. So first of all, Heidi, wh- how did you come up with the question? Um, so this is one of the arguments going on in the office. So what is it, what, do I need to have more plants? Is this plant annoying my neighbors, sucking my oxygen, creating oxygen? You know, people that have black thumbs like me, like you, you know, yep. if we kill them, are we going to kill everybody around us? So, yep, that's good. <laughs> so we wanted to look deeper. And so you did. And who did you call, by the way? Who do you well, like when you go to ask this question? How do you pick the people you pick to run down the answers to these questions? So that's a good question because th- this one was the hardest one I ever faced because I spoke to horticulturalists. Um, they said I, I spoke to top people and, they, and I waited, waited until she got to wherever she was driving to. She's not allowed to drive, talk while she's driving. And she, finally she said, you don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to an allergist. But we didn't want to talk to an allergist because we didn't want to talk about just allergies that you could have because some people just aren't allergic. So in the end, I got to this amazing um, professor, Dr. Hatta Selassie, who um, he's originally from Eritrea and he's at the University of Georgia and he is a soil expert. Uh-huh. So it was like horticulturalist or uh, which is a, basically a gardener, an expert gardener um, or uh, someone who was a plant biologist or an allergist. There were so many ways to go, but the soil guy was great because he knew about all the stuff that's happening down where you can't see. This is the thing, and this is where I got in trouble with the plant. It wasn't the plant that got me in trouble. It was all the junk that was in that dirt. And you have, we have and a quote here. A root can act as a colony for microorganisms, and overwatered fern can be more than just an eyesore. So let's dig into that. Yeah, so, so there's two things. One is, you know, it, the root system is a nutrient-rich place, and lots and lots. I mean, I don't know what the number is, but tens of thousands, millions, many, many other organisms, microorganisms live in there. You wouldn't see them. You wouldn't smell them. You wouldn't know they were there. A lot of it's bacteria. 99% of that is, is fine. They're beneficial to the plant. They help give it nutrients. But then there's the fungus 
of which mold is one of them. And that kind of, they kind of grow to elongate the roots. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. So they'll, they'll make the roots a little bit longer so they could suck even more nutrients out. But if you overwater them, which someone like you, someone like me would probably do, which I've done a million times to my poor, beautiful orchids that I always kill. Um, if you overwater them, then you know, the mold grows and it, and it produces spores, and then that can go into the air, and a lot of us are allergic. To Heidi, I'm having flashbacks. This is what happened. I overwatered them. I killed them, and then there was this, and there was this fungus all the over the place. Smell, right? And there was a fungus <laughs> smell, and there was this stuff growing on the top, and I'm in trouble. And it was all it over. Like I, I did it to. A, I did it to. Yeah. I did it to like a dozen plants, and they, and each of these ficus trees was like two hundred and fifty bucks. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I, I thought I was doing that. a good job tipping it <laughs> off at the top and watering these things. I was really diligent. So anyway. and how is that your job anyway? I know. How is it my job? <laughs> so how does this affect the so, plant owner? This 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 mold and these spores. I mean, I already know the answer to this, but. Tell the audience how does this affect? Yeah, the, so it would the be owner? a lot like seasonal allergies. So if your if your house is filled with plants, which a lot of people do that. I mean, my aunt's house is crazy town filled with plants, and you know it can make your eyes itchy and watery. You feel like you know, you, and if you have asthma, it can really get deep into your bronchioles, and it can it can really trigger asthma. So it, it can be bad for you. Now, the the stuff that the plants are off gassing um, are similar. Maybe I'm working too faster, but they're similar to the, the volatile organic compounds, the VOCs that are emitted by everything else in your house, mm-hmm. like your electronics and your carpets and your detergents, and you can't, you can't smell them or detect them. So there's home kits that are available to detect how high your VOCs are in your home. Um, and if your house isn't really well vented and you've got lots and lots of plants, and also all the other stuff in your house, um, you know, the VOC levels can be kind of toxic. I'm not saying it's just the poor plant's fault, but certainly adding to all of these things that are better circling around your house that you can't see, that you can't detect, that are not good for you. Yeah, and you say here the stressed-out plant, and by the way, I don't know how plants get stressed out, but some plants seem to. And they were attacked by by an aphid or by a bad bacteria or a bad fungus. Right. And then that's not good. And by the way, a plant can also produce more carbon dioxide than oxygen. And that doesn't sound like fun, Heidi. So that was something totally news to me that um, that at night when it doesn't have. So the process of creating oxygen is it's not directly breaking down CO2. It requires water and light, right? The um, photosynthesizing and you learn all that in like sixth grade. But um, but so when at night when there is no energy from the light, from the sunlight to provide the energy to split these molecules, um, it kind of does the opposite. So it's a 24-hour process. It's called respiration. So like the way that we breathe in and out, the plant is kind of breathing in and out. And so at night, it can create, a plant can create more CO2, carbon dioxide, than than it's creating oxygen in the daytime. But usually on balance, it's creating more oxygen than carbon dioxide, a healthy plant. So as long as you don't have black thumbs like you or me, I mean, I have not a single plant in my home. <laughs> yep. So as long as you, you, you know, you treat it well and it's not being attacked and it seems like it's kind of healthy, it's, it's probably doing good. There are even some plants that do great things. They quote unquote scrub your home of these toxic VOCs. But, um, you know, but if your plant's being attacked and you're not treating it so well, or you're overwatering or underwatering or leaving your basement or not giving it enough light, it might 
be st- stealing more oxygen than it's creating, and then you're competing with it for air. So it's tricky is what you're saying. I mean, it's not just get the plant that's better for you. I mean, you better get the plant and know what you're doing. And if you're me or you, well, we're a danger to our household. We're going to release spores and toxins into the air and suck the oxygen out of our house, and we're paying good money for it. Right, wake saying. up dead. It's probably our own fault. <laughs> so maybe we're is. at fault and not the poor plants. I mean, the other thing is, is taking your plant in, like a, this time of year, people are digging out their gardens and pulling in like their tomato plants or le- little lemon trees. And, and the soil that's outside is not the soil, soil that's in your garden and outside is not the same soil that you're buying at your local garden shop. Right. The local garden shop is basically like a mulch that they've created from um, composting. And it's pretty pretty clean been the composting process kills most pathogens but the garden soil who knows what's in there who knows <laughs> so and that's what you're it's bringing really... all that inside yeah it's always a, it's a, i learned during that whole process a very traumatic process for me that it's all about the soil and we we had brought in the people who had bought those plants had brought in really bad dirt and every single plant was using outdoor dirt and somebody had chintzed, and we all got in trouble, the people who were caring for the plants. I wasn't able to mount a defense. It was at a law firm, by the way, a law staffing wow. firm. So we were actually going to try and try the case, like get a bunch of experts together and say we didn't do anything wrong. But then we thought we really need to get a life and a beer, and we were just out of there. It was a temp place anyway. <laughs> Let's get the next temp job. Heidi Mitchell, as always, great talking to you. Can houseplants be unhealthy for humans? I guess the verdict is sometimes yes, sometimes no. And Heidi, thanks as always for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our burning questions with Heidi Mitchell. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's now time for another edition of Steve Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. But not just any dude. One of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College. That professor you would have studied any class with. Wouldn't have mattered because he was so entertaining. That kind of guy. And he's the foremost expert on patriarchy. And a guy who, well, just daydreams a lot now. But before we bring you this daydream, Steve asked that we read this disclosure. Quote, The following are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrive fully formed, 
popping into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. And here's Steve's talentless daydream. It's the annual meeting of uh, the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Jackie Robinson, the greatest of all heroes, since Jackie has been pretty much, uh, since Jackie has been pretty much pipsqueaks, is to receive their fellowship's award for his contribution to the brotherhood of the two religious groups. And he asks me, a reporter, to help him with his uh, acceptance speech. This is what I suggest. Jackie, you should say, in 1947, I received the Rookie of the Year Award. And all my friends and everybody said, you must be very proud. I remember thinking that, of course, I was very grateful. But if you look at the record book, you'll see that it really wasn't a very good year for rookies. Then, in 1949, I received the Most Valuable Player Award. And uh, my friends and everybody uh, said, you must be very proud. Well, yes, I thought. It was terrific. Um, <clears throat> but if you uh, think about it, we're talking about grown men trying to, um, uh, trying to, to hit a round piece of a horse with a cylindrical piece of a tree. Then... Just this year, I received the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews Award for the contribution, my contribution to the Brotherhood of Christians and Jews. And my, all my friends and everybody said, you must be very proud. Yes, I am. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thanks so much for that, Steve. More daydreams to come. And now we segue... Uh, to something, well, a little less lighthearted. Um, every October, we celebrate Infant Loss Month. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan declared October as such, and that's miscarriages, stillborn, sudden infant deaths. And today we bring you Ori's story. She shared the loss of her infant during pregnancy, pregnancy on her video blog. Let's take a listen. So I just really had this like really sinking feeling in my in my heart, and um, I just I didn't feel normal. I didn't feel right, um, and so I went ahead and went and see emergency room. And when they were doing the sonogram, um, no one would talk to me. They wouldn't show me the screen, and they wouldn't normally they they let you listen to it, and. Uh, they were hiding everything behind me, and they told me that they weren't allowed to say anything. And so they made us go back in the room, and then the doctor came in, and he basically said, you know, there's, there's no heartbeat. I'm really sorry you did not want to cry, but I wanted you guys to understand that this is something that is very serious and very, um, it doesn't ever go away. You never stop thinking about it. And, um, it's really hard for, for people to deal with. For the women and for, um, the families involved. 
and it's very heartbreaking and it's especially hard because there's a loss that you have that you never have closure for you you don't get an explanation of why and you you don't get a funeral you don't get to say goodbye and it's very hard it's very hard for people to lose children and Ori continues talking about the aftermath of losing her infant during pregnancy her other child she calls boo and how starting the blog helped her get through it all i had to go back and explain to all of my family and friends why i was no longer pregnant and i had to go through the actual surgery which is called the dnc it's where they go in and just basically take the baby out because you sometimes you can't deliver it um, but there's nothing you get you don't you go in with a baby and you come out with nothing and that's it and then they send you home and then you're just at home and when I started YouTube it was I guess probably six months after this had happened and for a long time it was really hard for me to feel like I could like smile or laugh and I was worried about boo and I was worried about being a bad mom and I was worried about you know if I couldn't protect the baby that was inside of me how was I going to protect the one that was like walking out on the street and it took a really long time for me to not feel sad anymore and to stop crying. I cried every day for a really long time. And YouTube was one of the things that, and gaming, was one of the things that made me feel like me again. And thank you for that, Ori. And when you can, folks, or if you care to, 844-627-8255. Record your story. This is something that affects somewhere in the area of 25% of all married couples. A miscarriage, sudden infant death syndrome, stillborn uh, birth and death. It's just terrible. And yet somehow when you lose a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old, people, I think, have more understanding and compassion for that when you lose a baby to a miscarriage too often we don't give those couples enough time, don't treat that loss of life the same, and that's why we're doing this, A, because it affects so many people, and B, because if we can hear from people like Ori, maybe it'll help that next, that next couple, well, at least feel like they're not alone. Again, 844-627-8255. Record your story. Share it with us. October, Infant Loss Month, again, signed by President Ronald Reagan in 1988. This is Our American Stories.
was a young man, he never thought he'd see people stand in line to see the boy king. How'd you get so funky? Did you do the funky? This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's Steve Martin performing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. An actor, a writer, a producer, a musician, Steve Martin came to public notice in the 60s as a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and later as a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. In the 70s, he performed his odd and offbeat and quirky comedy routines before packed national houses. He's returned to doing stand-up, and also regularly tours with his bluegrass band, the Steep Canyon Rangers. We start this segment with Steve's classic stand-up comedy album called Let's Get Small. Recorded in San Francisco at a boarding house in 77, the album went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard pop charts. This album won the Grammy in 1979 for Best Comedy Album. In this clip, Steve gives hilarious takes on smoking. Well, not too many people smoking out here tonight. That's pretty good. <laughs> kind of bothers some people. If you're in a sleazy place like this and people start smoking, you know. It doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant though, and I'm eating and someone says, Hey, mind if I smoke? I always say, Oh, no, do you mind if I fart? <laughs> it's one of my habits. Yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. I quit once for a year, you know. But I gained a lot of weight. It's hard to quit. Um, you know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up, huh? See, I'm not a very tactful person. You ever start talking to someone and you forget what you're going to say and you're standing there going, uh, gee, I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. And they always go, well, it must not have been very important or you wouldn't have forgot it. Uh, <laughs> I would say, oh, I remember, I'm radioactive. <laughs> Shake. Okay, we're moving now, eh, folks? <laughs> yes, this is comedy. All right. Well, I decided I'm taking up smoking. My uh, doctor told me I wasn't getting enough tar. Now, the fun part of smoking is deciding... What brand to smoke? Now, Virginia Slims, that's a woman's cigarette, right? What do they have, like little breasts on them or something? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Here's another funny clip from that same album where Steve talks about how mad he is at his 102-year-old mother. (laughs) I'm so mad at my mother. (laughs) I don't know. She's 102 years old. She called me up the other day. She wanted to borrow $10 for some food. I said, hey, I work for a living. 
So I loan her the money. I have one of my secretaries take it down. And yesterday she calls me up and says she can't pay me back for a while. I said, what is this? So I worked it out whether I'm having her work on my transmission. <laughs> And if she can't fix that, I'm having her move my barbells up to the attic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and every once in a while on Our American Stories, we want to just dig into a comic's life. We're going to be doing this over and over again over the next few months. Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life is a memoir released by Martin back in 2007. It chronicles his early life, his days working for Disneyland in the magic shop, working at coffee shops and clubs as a comedy act, his relationships, his eventual fame, and the reason why he quit stand-up comedy at the height of his fame in 1981. In this clip, we hear a portion of this fascinating look into the mind of a comic genius, read by Martin himself from his own audiobook. It starts with Steve's nonconformist chant. And now, let's repeat the nonconformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. I did stand-up comedy for 18 years. Ten of those years were spent learning, four years were spent refining, and four were spent in wild success. My most persistent memory of stand-up is of my mouth being in the present and my mind being in the future. The mouth speaking the line, the body delivering the gesture, while the mind looks back, observing, analyzing, judging, worrying, and then deciding when and what to say next. Enjoyment while performing was rare. Enjoyment would have been an indulgent loss of focus that comedy cannot afford. After the shows, however, I experienced long hours of elation or misery, depending on how the show went, because doing comedy alone on stage is the ego's last stand. My decade is the 70s, with several years extending on either side. Though my general recall of the period is precise, my memory of specific shows is faint. I stood on stage, blinded by lights, looking into blackness, which made every place the same. Darkness is essential. If light is thrown on the audience, they don't laugh. I might as well have told them to sit still and be quiet. The audience necessarily remained a thing unseen, except for a few front rows, where one sourpuss could send me into panic and desperation. The comedian's slang for a successful show is, I murdered them, which I'm sure came about because you finally realize that the audience is capable of murdering you. <laughs> Stand-up is seldom performed in ideal circumstances. Comedy's enemy is distraction, and rarely do comedians get a pristine performing environment. I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers and loud talkers, and not to mention the nagging concern, is this funny? Yet the seedier the circumstances, the funnier one can be. I suppose these worries keep the mind sharp and the senses active. I can remember instantly retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass of wine, or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze, seemingly microseconds before the interruption happened. I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic, I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented. I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive. 
though I almost destroyed myself. In the end, I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago, I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up and why I walked away. Fascinating, and what a writer. And we want to end where we started, and let's go back to Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's Get Small, and hear his hilarious insight into how it's impossible to be depressed when listening to the sound of a banjo. Sound. You just can't sing a depressing song when you're playing the banjo. You just can't go, oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder. When you're playing the banjo, everything's okay. Hey, Steve, your house is burning down. I just thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon, you know. <laughs> he went on television right at the right time went, Hi, everything's great <laughs> well, he was, I think it'd be great if he had been traveling around the country And got off the plane and said I'd like to talk about politics But first, a little Foggy Mountain Breakdown go to foreign countries and they get off the plane and people go, hey, do Foggy Mountain. <laughs> yeah, the banjo's so happy. I think, I think people who are out of work, instead of giving them money, we should give them a banjo. <laughs> and they can go home and, did you get a job today, dear? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't matter, though. Oh, and we're cracking up here and that's what we want to do. And we're going to be going back Across the Pantheon, we're going to be bringing in Richard Pryor, Sid Caesar, Woody Allen's nightclub years. You want to hear a great stand-up, whatever you think of Woody personally, his movies, his Greenwich Village tapes, some of the funniest stuff you've ever heard. Uh, we've all got to laugh, and we got to enjoy ourselves. Steve Martin. And we're going to go out again where we started with Steve Martin singing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Jesse. Enjoy the music. The ladies love this style. Boss tut, tut. Rockin' for a mile. Rockin' tut, tut. He ate a crocodile. Ooh. He gave his life for tourism. This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, 
We're going to bring you Arnold Palmer's funeral. If you lived around Latrobe, Pennsylvania or Pittsburgh, quite a number of the local news teams cut in, and we joined that feed because we knew there'd be great stuff. And boy, was there. And by the way, if you do have a chance, go to your newsstand and pick up the Sports Illustrated, the special edition for Arnold Palmer, and read Michael Baumberger's piece, A King Among Us. It's so beautifully written. Chichi Rodriguez, the legend, said, Every touring pro should bow down and pray to Arnold Palmer for what he did for golf. He wasn't precious. He wasn't privileged. One reporter called him Marlon Brando with a golf club. He created an army of fans known as Arnie's Army, and as you'll learn, there was a reason. He was loved, and you're going to hear that in this funeral. Let's start where it began with Archbishop Douglas Nowitzki, who began his reading of Psalm 23, Arnold Palmer's favorite verse. I would like to begin our memorial service with a reading of Psalm 23. This psalm of trust in God and human courage was meaningful to Arnie throughout his life. You, Lord, are my shepherd. I will never be in need. You let me rest in fields of green grass. You lead me to streams of peaceful water, and you refresh my life. You are true to your name, and you lead me along the right paths. I may walk through valleys as dark as death, but I won't be afraid. You are with me, and your shepherd's rod makes me feel safe. You treat me to a feast while my enemies watch. You honor me as your guest, and you fill my cup until it overflows. Your kindness and love will always be with me each day of my life. And I will live forever in your house, O Lord. And then came friends, fellow golfers, family members. And the first up, former LPGA commissioner and friend, Charlie Meacham, who set up the stories he's about to tell about Arnold Palmer. After uh, I retired from the LPGA, Arnold invited me to become a consultant and advisor to him and move into his office at Bay Hill. I was honored to do this, and we, for the next 10 years, shared desks about eight feet apart with an open door in between. So naturally, we had a lot of conversations. So what I want to do today as my part in the program is simply to share a few just simple stories that I hope and think might give us a smile. And to get a feel for the man, here is Meacham talking about he and his friend would talk about each other's hair or lack thereof. As we both grew older, my hair would get a little longer and his a little thinner. And he would say to me, Charlie, you need a haircut. And my answer was, Arnold, that comment is coming from the deep envy and jealousy that you feel 
for my hair. And by the way, have you ever considered a toupee? <laughs> he reached for a three iron and I moved out quickly. And it got at the playfulness of this man. Meacham shares one of his favorite memories about Palmer. One of my favorite stories, many of you have probably heard this, is the friend that told Arnold that his mother had been in a nursing home. Her memory was fading a bit. And uh, one of his friends went to see her. She had been a great fan of Arnold's and had his picture on the wall surrounded by all of her family. Well, he had a nice visit with her and he said as he was leaving, Mrs. Jones, uh, it must be real comfort to you to, to have the, uh, those, all those photos. And uh, she said, oh, it's wonderful. She said, you know, I don't know who all those people are, but that's Arnold Palmer. And here Meacham shares what he says is his favorite story about his best friend. This may be my favorite story. One day during the Masters telecast, we were having lunch. Arnie, of course, as you know, had won it four times, and I was curious to get his impressions of, uh, of the course and the, and the event. And as you know, holes 13 and 15 always present a very interesting challenge. They are both par fives, have water hazards just in front, creek on 13, a lake on 15. More than once, players have laid up on these holes, being unwilling to risk going into the hazard and becoming toast. Well, I asked Arnold, have you ever considered laying up on 13 or 15? He sat for a minute, and then he said, uh, you know how many times I've come in second at Augusta? And I thought, well, that's not, not, no, not really an answer, but I said, uh, uh, no, I don't. He said, neither do I. <laughs> Think about that. Neither do I. And to me, that sort of said it all. Winning wasn't his only goal. But coming in second certainly didn't rank very high. Arnold Palmer was going to not ever lay up and lay back. I think that's why everyone loved him. He just, he ripped, he let it rip. He went for it. Was he the greatest golfer? Who cares? Was he the most important? You bet. And you're going to learn why. As you listen to more and more folks talk about this man. Arnold Palmer's funeral and memorial service at St. Vincent Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. We're going to take you back there after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, for Arnold Palmer. By the way, that's very, very infamous location for football fans because it's where the Pittsburgh Steelers train. And Arnold Palmer's relationship, as you're going to learn as you continue to listen with family, friends, and all of the people who loved him in the sport, well, there's a big reason for it. And it ends up that, as we learned about Arnold Palmer, he didn't just play the sport brilliantly. He democratized the sport, a sport that had been before him only for the elites. And he didn't just democratize it, he commercialized it. He was the first golf pro to win a million dollars on the professional tour. He was the first to fly his own plane to a tournament. He ended his career with 68 PGA wins, seven majors, and four masters. Four. The first to ever do such a thing. So let's go back to that memorial service. And now we hear from his grandson, a golf pro himself, Sam Saunders. We are all here for the same reason. We loved Arnold Palmer. We all loved my grandfather. I had the unique opportunity to be able to call him a grandfather. My family here today had the pleasure to know him as not just the celebrity, the professional golfer, the aviation superstar. Um, We knew him as Dumpy. That was his name. We referred him as, with as much love as we could. Uh, the name Dumpy came from my oldest sister, Emily, in an attempt to call him Grumpy as a little girl. Her GRs were Ds. And um, to this day, I have Dumpy in my phone. Dumpy. Saunders talks about knowing his grandfather as a real person. You all are used to seeing him in his stiff collared shirts with the umbrella pin, wearing it with a style that only he could. We had the unique opportunity to see him in cut-off sweatpants and a t-shirt sometimes. And we loved that man as much as you loved the man that you saw on TV. There wasn't a big difference between the man you saw on TV and the man that we knew at home. Saunders then went on to talk about how Arnold Palmer, his grandfather, was always there for him. I want to tell you a couple of stories from me personally, of why he meant so much to me. I could talk about my golf career and and how he helped me get started in that and and all of the great advice he's given me, but what, what he did so well with me is he was always there. He was there for me, but he was there for our entire family. He would always take my phone call, always. In fact, I called him one day and He would always answer the phone, and in his voice, where are you? That was was how he answered the phone every time. And I was always at a tournament somewhere. I said, oh, I'm I'm here, I'm here. Or he'd say, why aren't you playing? And I said, I am playing. I'm in Boise, playing in the web.com event, or I'm, you know, wherever. And this one particular time, he said, where are you? I said, I'm at home. And I said, where are you? He said, I'm with the president. So I, I, I said, 
what do you the president of what? <laughs> and he said to me as if it was so obvious, the United States. He said, I'm in the Oval Office right now with the president. And I said, well, why are you answering your phone? He said, I wanted to talk to you. And that's what he did. He always wanted to talk to me. He always wanted to be there for us. And he always, always was. That'll make you feel pretty important. Having a granddad who cuts off the president of the United States to take a random call from a grandson. Something I think we can all learn from, by the way. Saunders then describes his next and final phone call with Grandpa. The next phone call I want to tell you about is a little bit tougher. It's the last phone call that I ever made to him. I will be grateful for the rest of my life that I called him at 4.10 on the Sunday that he passed away. I called him. He answered the phone on the first ring in the hospital preparing for surgery the next morning. He asked me where I was. (laughs) Where are you? I said, I'm at home. I said, I'm thinking about you today. We all are. And he told me to take care of my babies, take care of my children, take care of my family my entire family. And I intend to do that and make him proud. And then I told him I loved him. He told me he loved me back. And that was the last thing we said to each other, and I will cherish that for the rest of my life. And possibly as good as it got, you would think, but no, just more and more folks continue to share their memories. And before we continue, I wanted to share just a few things from this Sports Illustrated piece by Michael Bamberger. And he writes this, and I, I found this, well, this was something we didn't come across anywhere else when we were doing our research. Root around the soul of any professional golfer, and you'll find something melancholic. Fans remember Palmer tossing victory balls and flinging visors like they were Frisbees. Those photos were lodged in Palmer's mind, too, but he remembered just as well the ones that got away. He revisited these events without bitterness, but with genuine regret. Hearing him talk about these tournaments made him all the more real. He had a way of creating intimacy. Friends, relatives, and employees were intensely loyal to him. Unlike almost every other great champion, Palmer found joy in the game even after Age started eroding his skills. He liked being in public. He liked being with the boys. And he liked the challenge of trying to improve. He loved golf at every stage. One day when he was in his 70s, Palmer was playing a par 3 course in the California desert. Early on, he found himself one down to a duffer, a local guy. But then he started to turn the match around. He shook his club and yelled joyfully, I got you now. And in the end, that's Arnold Palmer. He just loved to compete and he loved to play. And a lot of guys, once they lose being the best at something, they just quit. And you feel sorry for those guys because it meant they didn't love the sport. They loved the conquest. 
And it tells you a lot about this man. And one man who knew him well was Russ Meyer. You heard a little bit about Arnold Palmer's love of aviation. In the same Sports Illustrated story, they said, look, the thing that was really distinctive about Arnold was that he lived like everyone else except for the private planes because he loved to fly. Here's Russ Meyer, Chairman Emeritus of Cessna, talking about Arnold Palmer's love of flying. He didn't just like to fly. He loved to fly. And the faster the speed and the higher the altitude, the better he liked it. Shortly after he earned his private pilot's license, back in the late 50s, he put his golf clubs in the back seat of a Cessna 172, flew solo to Akron to play an exhibition, and was back home for dinner. That was it for Arnie. It was not only fun, but he recognized that flying his own aircraft would enable him to pursue both his golf and business careers and still live in Latrobe back in the days when there was no airline service. Arnie was not just a pilot, he was an outstanding pilot. In aviation, we describe the really special pilots as having good hands. And I can assure you that Arnie's hands were just as comfortable on the controls of an aircraft as the grip of a golf club. He logged almost 20,000 hours and he flew just about everything, the 747, high-performance military jets, acrobatic aircraft, helicopters. If it had wings and an engine, Arnie would give it a try. He even flew with the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds. Long before they constructed that beautiful new runway at Arnold Palmer Airport, he operated his business jets in and out of a narrow 4,000-foot strip that had no control tower, minimal snow removal, no precision landing system, and a pretty good-sized tree on the final approach to runway 21. And that's Russ Meyer again, Chairman Emeritus of Cessna, Arnold Palmer's memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. We're going to bring you more after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with Arnold Palmer's memorial service at St. Vincent College at his home in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. An airport's named after him there, and as we learn, Arnold Palmer loved to fly. And in that great Sports Illustrated piece, as I had said earlier, it was said over and over again that Arnold liked to live like an ordinary guy. He didn't have these mansions, and he ate what normal folks eat. That one exception was his love of aviation. And by the way, we're going to hear more from Russ Meyer, again, the chairman emeritus of Cessna. And by the way, Russ knows a bit about flying himself, not just from his executive experience. He was a former Marine fighter pilot. And here is Meyer going on to describe Palmer as the best friend 
he ever had. I'd like to close this morning with some personal comments about the best friend I ever had. For a guy who was so confident and so successful, it was interesting to me that Arnie occasionally needed a little reassurance. After an important speech or a business meeting, he would sometimes ask me, did I do okay? And invariably, I'd pat him on the shoulder and I'd say, you did okay. If Arnie were here this morning, as we celebrate his life, and if he asked me, did I do okay? I'd say, think about this. You raised a wonderful family that mirrors the strength of your character and the quality of your values. You have enriched and inspired the lives of millions of people all over the world, not just by how you played, but who you are. And your exceptional generosity to so many charities, especially for health care for babies and children, will have a positive impact and bring joy to thousands of families for generations. That legacy, in my view, is even more important than all those majors. So I'd have to say, my good pal, you did okay. Thank you. And then up next came possibly the best sports broadcaster in history and another friend. And Palmer had a talent for making friends. And this guy is Jim Nance, CBS Sports broadcaster, talking about how blessed everyone was to have Palmer in their lives for so many years. Arnie's last tournament win on the PGA Tour was a 1973 Bob Hope Desert Classic. He was 43 and a half years old. He passed away last week, 43 and a half years after having won that tournament. It's almost eerie if you looked it up, how the days almost match up in perfect symmetry. So the first nine of his life, you know, was spent right here in Latrobe, loving parents, big dreams, a father's dream passed on to a son, wants him to one day go down, compete at Augusta. People say, well, he won it four times. People forget, though, he was the first to ever win it four times. It was a huge achievement at the time, the first to ever win it four times. And all the other many things he did through those first 43 and a half years. But you know, the second nine, he was still competing. He was playing in the skins game competitions and playing some senior golf. But that second nine was every bit as rewarding and fulfilling and relevant. You know, he was building golf courses all over the world. He was building hospitals. He was the captain of the philanthropic efforts of our sport. You know, unlike other sports, you never really retire in our game. You're still around. Weren't we blessed and lucky and fortunate to have Arnie for all these years? 
Nance goes on to talk about Palmer's performance at his last Masters tournament and what an enormous heart he really had. His last Masters round in competition was a sad day. We were never ready for that. It took him a long time just to get up to the first tee. He got on the putting green just in time to, in theory, hit a couple of putts. He had shaken so many hands on the way to the practice putting green. I happened to be standing there, and as soon as we locked eyes, he said, uh, have you made your decision? I was at a point making some significant career decisions at a crossroads. Was I going to go over and maybe do news in the morning? And I told him, I have. I'm staying with sports. This is my dream, was to grow up one day broadcast the Masters Tournament. There's no way I'm ever going to walk away from that. He said it was a tough decision. I said it was. You see, at that time, my father was deep in the throes of Alzheimer's, a battle that he would lose soon after. And Arnie was aware of all that. And I told him it was the first time in my life I could never seek my father's counsel. He was incapable of being able to help me through a very important decision. And here he was, Arnold, about to go tee off for the last time. And he leaned over and he pointed right here with great force. He says, you don't understand. Your father helped you make that decision. You were listening to him. He was right here the whole time. With that, Roy Saunders was caddying for him. His son-in-law came over and he said, hey, bro, we got to go. And he said, I haven't hit a putt yet. Let me just drop these three. He dropped three balls down 12 feet away, all three center cut, bottom of the hole. And off he went to go play the Masters for one last time. And as he left, he looked at Roy, looked at me, and he said, you know, this was always my dream, was always to come here. My father's wish was passed on to me. I know it's time, but I never wanted it to end. We never wanted this to ever end, this friendship, this connection we had with Arnold Palmer. It's almost impossible to define how somebody that big could have so many friends. How did he manage that? It blows my mind how he was able to keep all of us somehow in the loop. What a special talent. What an enormous heart. And Jim Nance, who usually is so glib, he was struggling through this. He was reading. And he's not a guy who reads. And Nance closes with a round of applause, or asking the audience for a round of applause, one last round for Arnold Palmer. But I think here we are in Latrobe, and knowing how much he loved that showering of love and appreciation. Can we give him one more? Can we give him one more walk and ovation for Arnold Palmer coming home up the 18th? Would you join me? And you were watching grown men and women standing, and they were all just crying, but not crying sad tears, actually. You know, those beautiful ones you cry at a life well lived. Again, one more reading from King Among Us from Sports Illustrated and Michael Baumgarter. Palmer played quickly. He drove the ball long and straight, 
and with his inimitable knock-kneed, wristy stroke, could run the table with his putter. He was not one to sit around and hyperanalyze swing positions with the meaning of life. Asked about life regrets, Palmer once said, Eh, I wish I would have tried putting left-handed low. That's about it. Arnold Palmer, his life remembered at his memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our last segment when we come back. This is our American Stories, and we return to the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, Arnold Palmer's memorial service, and we're dedicating the hour to this man, and we're not golf people here. We're not. We just stumbled upon this, well, Alex is a golf person, but he hasn't been golfing much because he's been working hard, and well, he's a new dad. But it's just such a great story, and here on Our American Stories, that's what we do. Up next was Peter Dawson, the former CEO of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club. And he talked about how Arnold Palmer, this American guy, brought Americans to the British Open. The RNA and the Open owe Arnold a very great debt. In those difficult post-war years prior to 1960, very few American golfers played in the championship. And in those 15 Opens, there were only two American winners. Arnold's success in the early 60s inspired many more of his countrymen to make the trip to to golf's oldest major. And in the following 15 Opens, American players won on nine occasions. The Open had been revitalized and was firmly back on the road to the great event it is today. Dawson went on to talk about Palmer as the golf ambassador and king. Yes, Arnold was golf's greatest ambassador, both at home and abroad. He mixed with heads of state, with presidents, with prime ministers, but he never lost his common touch. He could open doors which were firmly closed to others and spread interest in golf far and wide. But we all know he was more than an ambassador. He was the king and always will be. Have there been better golfers? Well, perhaps, but only a very few. Has anyone done more for our game? No one has come even close. Has there been a finer human being? Well, I admit I haven't met one yet. Arnold, we wish you Godspeed and thank you from golfers the world over for all you have done. Yours was indeed a life well played. And then up next was his dear friend and arch rival, Jack Nicklaus, who looks back and looked back 
at Palmer's love of flying. Mark McCormick managed Arnold and me, as well as our dear friend Gary Player. And because of that, we were put together in matches and big three exhibitions all over the world. We played together, we traveled together, we laughed a lot. Our wives became the absolute closest of friends, as did we. I've said a lot this week about Arnold's had two loves, golf and flying. And of course, Russ did a beautiful job cap capturing Arnold's passion for, for planes and flying. In some ways, Arnold approached his golf much like flying. He was passionate, loved to go fast, and he had a fearlessness about him. I remember a day in, in the 1960s, Arnold and I went out to Seagraves, Texas, a little town in West Texas, to play an exhibition. He had picked me up at his Aero Commander, and it was one of those windswept days in West Texas. And the Aero Commander were just bouncing all over the, all over the sky. To me, I felt like a, you know, a piece of paper in a tornado, and I'm holding on for dear life, scared to death. In fact, it's like a roller coaster coming off the tracks. I looked over at Arnold, and he was laughing. And it was like he was sitting in the front seat of a roller coaster, enjoying every moment. I did not enjoy that flight. By the way, Nicholas had started this, and he was stumbling, and he had to read and excused himself for doing such but he was just so nervous. And here's Nicholas going on to describe Palmer. And this was, I think, the highest tribute of them all, Jack Nicholas calling his dear friend, Arnold Palmer, the king of golf. I've said before, and I can't emphasize it enough today, I may have had to battle Arnold's army early on, but I never had to battle Arnold Palmer. Today, I'm a proud soldier in Ari's army. You see, I've even got an umbrella on my lapel. He was the king of our sport, and he always will be. Like the great Vin Scully, when he called his last game Sunday night for the Dodgers, he says, don't be sad that it's over. Smile because it happened. Today I hurt just like you hurt. You don't lose a friend of almost 60 years and not feel an enormous loss. But my wife often says, the memories are the cushions of life. Each of you sitting here today, or perhaps sitting at home, has at least one wonderful memory of Arnold Palmer to balance out your hurting heart. So for today, so today and many years from now, I simply ask, I simply ask you to just remember when. To his dear wife, Kit, his adored daughters, Peg and Amy, their families, kids, 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 children's, his friends, and his millions of fans. Remember when Arnold Palmer touched your life, touched your heart. And please, don't forget why. Thank you. I'm a proud soldier in Arnie's army, and the whole place was crying because they're watching Jack, Jack Nicholas hold back the tears, and there's nothing like watching a guy trying to hold back tears. A little bit more from that great Sports Illustrated piece before we then play the final, final tribute by Vince Gill. Arnold Palmer's legacy is vast. He was a part owner of Bay Hill Club and Lodge, where a PGA Tour event bearing his name is played every March. He was an owner of the Pebble Beach Golf Links, 
Arnold Palmer was amused and a little embarrassed by the ubiquity of the beverage that bears his name, a lemonade iced tea drink he is credited with inventing. Palmer had six grandchildren and nine great-grandchildren. Arnold Daniel Palmer, Arnie to most everyone, was a man of his generation. He insisted that men remove their hats upon entering the various clubhouses under his watch, and he was a big believer in the benefits of a firm handshake. He often said that the secret to the success of his as a pro golfer was the firm grip his father taught him as a child, just a few years after the great crash. He never changed his grip. He never changed his swing. He never changed anything. The New York Times columnist Dave Anderson once wrote that nobody could enjoy being who he is or she is more than Arnold Palmer enjoys being Arnold Palmer. That observation got to the heart of the man and the matter. Palmer lived a life full and got millions of others to believe they could do the same. And so we leave the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, with this from the singer and songwriter Vince Gill. I'm Vince. I'm the golfer none of you have ever heard of. Um, I just want to thank the family for the gift of uh, the invitation to come here and honor an old friend. That means more to me than you'll ever know. This um, this man was uh, my favorite person. Not my favorite golfer, but my favorite person that I ever met. This is Our American Stories, the life of Arnold Palmer, the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Let's take it out with Vince Gill. Wish I could see the angels' faces when they see your sweet, sweet swing. Mountain, the sun you were 
earth is done Go to hell for the shepherd Love for the father and the son Go to hell for the shepherd Love for the father and the son.